In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we are told there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. And later on, we are told a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Last week, we began looking at the issue of hate in the light of scripture. And so part of this will be a review of what we looked at last week. What it seems at least for me, as I read scriptures, I I get mixed messages um, with regard to hate. And as a result, um, we oftentimes find the Bible being used incorrectly, being misused to justify attitudes and behaviors that are contrary to what is intended. If you're interested in this, Google theology of hate, and I think you will be somewhat surprised at the things that will come up. They certainly have to do with hate, but very little with theology. Part of this is because people will take one portion of scripture or several passages and then use them to justify, to excuse or rationalize, or even to require hateful behavior. So how do we know what the scripture intends? What does God call us as his children? He is our father, we are his children. What does he call us to do? we begin by trying to establish a foundation. First of all, we see that we are to be like our Father in heaven. For some, this may not help, particularly when it comes to the matter of hate, because it appears that God does things or has attitudes that are questionable, that make us sort of raise our eyebrows and wonder what God is doing. Psalm 5.5, The arrogant cannot stand in your, that is God's presence, You hate all who do wrong. Well, that's certainly not the picture most people want to have of God. Psalm 11, the Lord examines the righteous, but his the wicked and those who love violence, his soul hates. So these seemingly present problems. On the other hand, there are passages in the scripture that we would cling to and say, absolutely, amen, this is correct. Psalm 6 There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissensions among brothers. This makes sense to us, and this part we like. We want God to hate certain things that are wrong, like haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, and more. What would we think of God if God, in fact, did not respond, did not react to evil in his world? Would we consider him morally perfect? Let's forget that. Let's let's lower it down. Would we even consider him to be morally acceptable? Do we or do we not want a God who reacts, who responds to evil? Do we want him to take evil seriously? And how seriously do we want him to take evil? Um, the answer is usually yes, you know, yes, we, we want God to do these things. But then it gets a little tricky because the question is, what is evil? And there are certain things I think that we agree are evil, but then if we don't follow scripture, there are certain things that the scripture says we're not to do, but we're like, yeah, but it's, it's not that big a deal. And I don't want God to overreact. I don't want him to be petty about these things. Um, So yeah, the big things, 
you know, the capital E evil things we want God to respond to. But the other things, that almost seems silly. It almost seems beneath his dignity. Why should he care about such petty things? And then there's the question of God hating all who do wrong. You know, if we're told that we're to be like our Heavenly Father, um, we need to know the relationship between God and hate. Does God hate? How does God hate? And is it wrong for God to hate? As I mentioned last week, this last question may seem out of line, but our foundation must rest on the fact that we are called to be like God our Father. But there's something else that comes into play here. We must recognize that we are not morally superior or morally or ethically superior to God. You'd say, well, Damon, I, I, I don't think that I think that. But I would argue that oftentimes we see God as quite intolerant and we see ourselves as very tolerant. You know, that um, God is intolerant of sexual uh, differences in sexual orientation. He seems quite vindictive. I mean, what's hell all about? He seems egotistical and self-centered. He wants people to worship him all the time. Um, He seems to be afraid of the truth, that truth, that science will try to expose the truth, but God seems to be afraid of that. And here, I think we need to realize we're not actually talking about God, we're talking about the church how that oftentimes Christians seem afraid of science um, and then people project and say, oh, God is afraid of science because he doesn't want the truth to be known. Because we live in this world, like it or not, we are affected by these things. And in many ways, I think for us as sinners, it is a default position that we ask ourselves, who does God think that he is? Who is he to limit my freedom? Who is he to determine what is right and wrong? And for a lot of people today, they see God as immoral because, in fact, he projects his system of ethics on people. And they're like, I don't do that. Why would God do that? Along with this, by the way, comes, comes in the idea of God's love. And people define love not as scripture does, but as they want to, meaning that God should let me do whatever it is that I want to do. And then when we find out that God doesn't want want to allow you to do everything you want to do, then people are like, well, that's, that's really wrong. That God is wrong and I am right. Well, we need to recognize that we are not morally superior to God. This is a big thing. I think if we do not let go of this, then we are not going to understand the whole issue of hate, a theology of hate, but particularly of God and hate. We need to consider and realize what is the basis of morality. There are three possibilities. Again, I mentioned this last week. A spoiler alert, the first two are wrong. It is the third one that is correct. The first is that good and evil exist, that there's somehow an eternal, universal standard of right and wrong. It is a standard to which God himself is subservient. So God is not the supreme being, if you wish. He might be the supreme being, but there's something higher than him, not a being, but a standard or law to which God himself um, is obligated to, to obey. No, there's nothing behind God. 
There is nothing that commands God as to what he should do. But again, I think that this is more along our thinking than, we've, than we care to admit. Secondly, some would say that good and evil are only names that God gives to things as he decides. It's quite arbitrary. And if you've been reading us with us through the Old Testament, it seems that you know in one generation this is okay, in another generation it's not. And so we begin to have a sense that, that God is quite arbitrary in the way that he does things. These two positions are wrong. The correct position is that God's character, his attributes determine, they define what is good and what is evil. Anything that does not conform to his nature, anything that opposes God's nature is in fact evil. God does not change. His character does not change. We are sinners because we do not conform to the image of the creator. And we sin when we try to be or make our own gods, as Gia read to us from Jeremiah today. God is God, he is eternal, he does not change, and anything that is contrary to him is in fact wrong and it is evil. So let's go back to the initial plank in our foundation. We are to be like our heavenly father whose holiness is who he is in his essence. So, with that in mind, now we've got a foundation, let's ask ourselves a question, what is hate according to scripture? See, the questions of what counts as hate, you know, what, what is really or truly hate, and on whose authority can we say this is really hate, uh, are important questions that we need to answer. The second question, on whose authority, I think we've just answered. And that is that God and his character are what determine what is right and what is wrong. They determine what can be named as hate. We'll come back to this later. As to the first question, I would propose five avenues of thought. That is what counts as hate. First of all, let's define hate as that which derives from a strong dislike or ill will toward persons or things. This tells us that hate is primarily a reaction. That we see something that is contrary to what God intends and we dislike it, we despise it, we hate it. Secondly, both God and those made in his image have the capacity for hate. As we've seen we are to be like our Heavenly Father, meaning if God can hate, we can hate as well. But we are not without sin. And we change. We are not unchanging. And therefore, our hate has a great potential to be sinful. Thirdly, hate is an emotional attitude, though it may in fact involve the intellect as well. I think this is an important thing, and I'm just going over these quickly, but if nothing else, this should tell us that God has emotions. That God is an emotional being. That God loves and God hates. Number four, and this is sort of a restating of number two, hate may involve opposing or despising contact with a person or thing. We should not think of it exclusively, I'm not even sure primarily, as an attitude or an emotion, an intellectual sense, but it in fact results in actions. So that, uh, you know, I think we are more comfortable saying, I hate something or I hate someone, 
I don't know that we're comfortable saying, I'm going to do something about it. But in fact, I would argue that is, that is part of the equation. And number five, love and hate are often seen in opposition to each other in scripture, but not always. As one writer put it, God hates. Those words may sound foreign to us. They may sound improper. But the God who loves what is good must hate what is evil. The God who loves what honors his name must despise what dishonors it. The God who loves what blesses his people must hate what harms them. And by the way, this ties in with what we saw in Daniel with regard to empires, that God's response has to do with how they treat God's people. So let's ask and answer some questions. What does the Bible tell us about God and hate? First of all, it is clear that there are things that God hates. And I'll just give a partial list to make the point. It's very, very partial list. First of all, God hates religiosity. Isaiah 1.14, your new moon festivals and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. And then in Amos 5.21, I hate, I despise your religious feast. I cannot stand your assemblies. People are going through the motions. They, in fact, are they're living like pagans, but they go through the motions of religiosity. And God says, I hate, I despise this. Tied to this, God hates hypocrisy and lies. What is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is a person who uses the veneer of public virtue to cover the rot of private vice. What people see is not, in fact, what is really there. Such a person is living a double life. What is a lie? Well, that which is not the truth. So we would agree, I hope, that God stands in opposition to these things, religiosity, hypocrisy, and lies. God hates wrongdoing. In Isaiah 61, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. In my faithfulness, I will reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. God hates violence. I don't know that we think about it that way. In Malachi chapter 2, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. I think the first part, this is in verse 16 of Malachi 2, I hate divorce, I think we're familiar with that. But the idea that God actually hates violence, that people who in a sense, put on a robe of violence the way that they would put on a robe of clothing. Now, this is only a partial list, but I think it begins us down the road to help us understand several things. First of all, God hates those things that violate his standards. We understand that, that those things that violate his standards are evil. Secondly, these standards are based on, I would say, two essential qualities, but one, because the other one is a subset, his holiness, that God is holy and perfect. And secondly, God is a God of justice. Justice is a subset of his holiness. God acts in justice because, in fact, he is holy. Thirdly, those who despise or disregard God's standards may expect that he will oppose them, that he will even hate them. Then, 
while it is not seen in the passages I have mentioned, they are all from the Old Testament, by the way, we see this demonstrated in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Some people have argued that Jesus acted the way that God does. I think that we've got that the other way around. That God acts the way that Jesus did. That Jesus is, in fact, the Godhead in bodily form. So when we want to know, what does God do? What are the things that God does? What are his reactions? Look at Jesus. Because there it is. That Maybe I'm, I'm being picky here, but rather than Jesus being a reflection of God the Father, is in fact God the Father who is reflected in the Lord Jesus. This leads us to another point. Hate is, God, is not God's only possible response to those things which violate his standards. Yes, God has standards. Those that are opposed to them are evil. And God loves those things that are right. He hates those things that are wrong. But hate is not the only possible uh, reaction or response. If you want to turn to John chapter 8... There's a story here that I think we're all familiar with. Um, I will say, parenthetically, that there are people who say this doesn't belong here, uh, that it belongs in another part of John or doesn't belong in the Gospel of John. I take it to be scripture. Um, It begins in verse number 2 of John chapter 8. At dawn he, that is Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go and leave your life of sin. Things to point out about this passage. First of all, the woman was caught in the act. The question of her guilt is not, cannot be a question, okay? She, in fact, was guilty. The law of Moses is quite clear about this, that those who commit adultery are to be put to death. They are to be stoned to death. Jesus knew the law, as did the teachers of the law, obviously, and the Pharisees. They want Jesus to condemn her to death. But they're trying to trap him to get the people to turn against him. But then there are certain things I think that we should wonder about. First thing that always comes to mind for me is, where is the man? It takes two to commit adultery. They've caught the woman, but where is the man? Should he not also be condemned to death like the woman? And by the way, how did the teachers of the law and the Pharisees catch her in the act? That's a strong 
hint, at least for me, that this was completely set up so that they could get to Jesus. And then why doesn't Jesus respond immediately? He squats down and is drawing on the ground and then stands up and then says something to them and then is drawing on the ground again. Um, And then he tells them, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. There is the possibility, it's been suggested, that Jesus is not simply saying, if you've committed any sin. But he's speaking specifically of the sin of adultery. We hear Paul writing similarly in in Romans chapter 2. You, he's writing to the Jews, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. And I would suggest this is what happened with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Paul goes on to say, you who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? In any case, they all leave. Interestingly enough, beginning at the oldest and down to the youngest. Jesus says to the woman, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. And from this, we hear God's mercy, as well as a call to repentance and a changed life. As Jesus told Nicodemus, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so I think at this point, as we're trying to construct the theology of hate, we need to understand that our view of God and hate should not be simplistic and devoid of mercy. That God's response to evil, to sin, is not only hatred, but there's also mercy. Otherwise, if we, otherwise we'll end up being like the Pharisees. And we will say, this person is a sinner, I will have nothing to do with them. Uh, in fact, I hate this person because they commit sin. In Luke 15, we have three parables of three lost things. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, or known as the prodigal son. They are spoken in a particular context. Listen as I read the first two verses. This is the context of these three, par- three parables. Now the tax collectors and sinners, in quotation marks, were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. See, Jewish society was, could be very exclusive. They had Moses' law, and Moses talked about clean and unclean. And this had been extended to people, and so there are people you could hang out with and people you should not hang out with. Those you shouldn't hang out with, we'll call, for lack of a better word, outsiders. They're on the outside. How are we supposed to respond to these people? How are we to react to them? Well, this is the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees. Because in the Pharisees, we see hatred. They certainly despise them. They will have nothing to do with them. And yet Jesus eats with these tax collectors and sinners. It's a distinct difference between how God acts toward sinners and oftentimes those who call themselves God's people act toward them. In Luke chapter 7, we read, now one of the Pharisees, and this is Simon, invited Jesus to have dinner with him. He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. 
And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Hatred is not, is God's, it is not the only response of God toward sinners or toward evil. By the way, just a side note about parables. When we went through, I mentioned this. Uh, parables were spoken not to tell us about us, they're to tell us about God. And so in the prodigal son, you have the father welcoming his son back, his younger son. And then the older son, who doesn't want to come in because he's sort of having a tantrum, he wants him to come in and join in the celebration of joy. They tell us that God is a God of mercy, that hatred is not his only possible response. Jesus ate with sinners. I've mentioned this before, but one scholar has theorized that the reason that Jesus was crucified was because of who he ate with. He broke all the rules. For them, it was black and white. We're the good people. They're the bad people. There's a line here. Don't cross it to go over with them. And I think they could justify themselves by saying, we're standing up for God's righteousness. We're standing up for what is right. Therefore, we hate what is wrong. And yet, in the life of Jesus, we see that there are, certain, there are times when he reacts, and certainly against the Pharisees, he hated their hypocrisy and religiosity. But we also see mercy as he deals with those who are sinners. So we see that God hates, but that hate is not the only possible response, even to those who deserve his hatred. So what, that's God and hate. What about us as human beings? What about us as God's people? I'll mention three things, and the Lord willing, we'll look at this next week. First of all, we are capable of hate. We are, after all, made in the image of God. Secondly, we are capable of wrong hate, of sinful hate. And this is because even though we're made in God's image, we are fallen. We are sinners because of Adam and Eve's sin. And thirdly, I trust that we will see, by God's grace, hate is not to be our only response. We are creatures marked by grace. God has been merciful to us. As Paul says, even when we hated him, he loved us and showed mercy. And we should do the same with those around us. The Lord willing, we will continue the series by God's grace, gain some insight into the matter of hate so that we will be like our Father in heaven. And hopefully, in doing this, we will have a better understanding, not necessarily a complete or perfect understanding, of passages like Psalm 139. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Hard words. What's being said and how are we to take them? In closing, listen to a story of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew 
sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I think, I think some people would hear that passage and say, yes, that's very good, David, very good. You make a good point. This is Jesus. This is the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, God seems angry and there's hatred and it, it's just really quite dark. But then Jesus comes in and we don't hear about hatred. It's about love and isn't this wonderful. Um, but Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's from Hosea 6.6. That's from the Old Testament. I think we want to put a chasm between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Not at all. There is a unity that we find between them. We shouldn't expect that God's actions in the Old Testament will be different than what we find in the New Testament. And that what the Old Testament teaches us is what we can also take to the New Testament and vice versa. God is God of holiness. He opposes those things that are contrary to his nature. But hate is not the only possible response. God is a God of holiness, but he's also a God of mercy. And the Lord willing, next Sunday we will see how this applies to us. Let's pray together. Father, I think we know quite well how to hate. I think, in fact, we're quite good at it. But I suspect that that does not come from being made in your image as much as it comes from us being sinners and being fallen, deeply flawed. I thank you that you have not abandoned us, you have not left us alone. And so if we want to know how it is we are supposed to think and feel and act. We can look to you. You are our Father. We are your sons and daughters. We are to act. We are to be like you. Like Father, like Son. It is hard for us at times to accept that you hate things. But help us to see by your grace that hate is not your only response to evil. But as is evident in our lives, mercy is as well. I thank you that you sent your son, the Lord Jesus. And we see you in him. We know how you think, how you act, how you feel by looking at Jesus. I thank you for his compassion and his mercy and his tenderness. And yet at the same time, he stood for what was right. May we learn from that. Guide us in the weeks to come as we continue to look at this sensitive matter 
and yet it's so prevalent in our society today. May we as your children come to see what scripture says about hate and about what we are supposed to do in regard to hate. Thank you for bringing us together today for the good news about Nevin gaining weight. We pray for ransom that you would touch him and take away his fever. And for the one year that Robert has been with us. How good you are to us. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. May we have a sense of your presence as we walk through this world in the coming week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.